you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5? 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to see this morning one of the most beautiful stories, one of the most beautiful narratives in all of the Old Testament, I'm convinced. And I think it really gives us a precursor of what new covenant conversion will look like. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 17. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord would, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the, Lord, the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, that's about 750 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends words to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That sounds like a man born again, doesn't it? Then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, uh, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord together. This morning, Lord, we're anxious to hear from you. That, Father, today you would reveal yourself in even greater degree in your transcendent glory before us. And that your transcendent glory would evaporate all of the tiny, minuscule fears that we face here in this world. I pray that, Lord, your glory would be so glimpsed by your people that we would be set free to really love our neighbor as ourselves. That we would be set free to be able to not tremble in the sight of men, but instead to fight fear with fear, with the fear of the Lord, overcoming our fear of 
man. I pray, Lord, that this morning, that this morning, like Naaman, we would find gospel freedom in the love and kindness of God by faith in a simple gospel. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's, it's not really uncommon for a husband or a wife or often together for them to come and to sit before me and to say this, I don't really like him anymore. <laughs> I don't really like her anymore. In fact, I would prefer to stay at work longer if I can, and I often do. I would prefer to go on as many trips without him as I can, and I, I, I try to do just that. That actually when I get home, I'm, I'm easily irritated and annoyed and angry that I resent him. I resent her. And often what comes to their minds is the reality that even though they find themselves resenting the very person they have committed their lives to, is that they don't really know how they got there. They don't really know how they ended up loathing the very presence of the person that at one point in their life, they said, I can be with you every day for the rest of my days. And I'll make a vow to that extent. They wonder, looking at those, thumbing through the photo albums of their weddings and seeing those smiling pictures where a cake has been smashed on one another's faces. How do we get here? How do we get here? And as much as they resent the present, very often... It's the dread of the future that is even worse. What if it doesn't get better? What if it gets worse? What if it gets harder? What, what if I become more resentful? What if they become more resentful? What if bitterness more and more takes seed and root in our lives, in our marriage, in our relationship? Like, What if today, as bad as it is, is as good as it gets? If you've ever felt that way, you can feel that way about your marriage. You can feel that way about your job. You can feel about that way about in your calling. You can feel that way about your place in life. You can feel that way about your health. You can feel that way in about every arena of your life. And if you've ever felt like that, then First and Second Kings was written specifically for people like you. It's written specifically for people like you. And I don't think we often understand the context of First and Second Kings. We wonder how in the world all these cycles of all these kings could possibly be relevant to us living now in 21st century America. Except that First and Second Kings was written to the people of God who were living in exile and they're there resenting their present, resenting the fact that they are living in Gentile land, serving Gentile kings and often Gentile masters. And they're dreading the future, thinking, well, if, this is, if it's this bad right now, what hope do we have to come? What hope is possibly on the horizon? And so just like that couple that comes and sits in my office, or maybe not in my office, maybe that's just what's happening in your house, just like that couple, just like that man who goes to work every day to a job that he dreads and wonders, how did I get here after all of my education and all of the paying of my dues? Those Israelites were asking that same question. How did we get here? And what hope do we have for the future? In fact, that's exactly the question that First and Second Kings is written to answer. First and Second Kings is showing the cycles of the kings, and it's showing these strange narratives in repeat. It's showing the confrontation of, of the prophets and the 
the idolatry of the people, and it's showing it so that those people who are living now outside of the promised land, in the agony of the mastery of the Gentiles, in the occupation of their land, having forfeited so much of the goodness of God that had been covenanted with them so that they can see how it is they ended up where they ended up. But that's not the only thing. It's not just good to know how you got here. It's good to know how you can get out, isn't it? That there can be hope. There can be hope. And so First and Second Kings is there to give an explanation of this is how you ended up where you are. And this is the way forward. This is the path out of the fear that you're facing. This is the path out of the hardship that you know. This is the path out of the resentful life that you're currently living. So when we come to 2 Kings chapter 5, I think what we're seeing here is a case study for those exiled Israelites so that they can see not only how they got to where they are, but the path forward into the future that they don't have to live in despair, even if they're living in a foreign land, even if they're serving as masters to gen- or as slaves to their Gentile masters. That the, the king that's in view here in 2 Kings chapter 5 is the son of Ahab, right? You remember Ahab and Jezebel? Well, this is the son. His name is Jehoram. And what we have here is an extraordinary account. So there's this constant conflict between Syria to the north and Israel, right? So they're always at war with one another. They're always costing the peace of each other and one another's lives. But they're in this like three-year period of peace that everybody is just kind of taking a break from the battle. Well, all of a sudden, in the middle of this piece, Jehoram finally thinks I can kick up my feet and do what kings do and like sit on the balcony and, and take in the expanse of my kingdom when Naaman, the commander, the commander and captain of the Syrian army, shows up at his door. Now, we already know that the Lord himself has made Naaman a great man. The Bible says it explicitly, that the Lord himself had given Naaman victory over his people in battle because the Lord works through the enemies of God's people to bring discipline to God's people, right? And so we already know this. And so here Naaman shows up and he has a letter from his king, the king of Syria, for Jehoram, and he hands it over. And then the king opens it up and he reads it and it says, Heal my commander, he has leprosy. So what does Jehoram do? What would you do? Can I just ask you? What would you do if the greatest, if the, if the commander of Al-Qaeda showed up at your house and said, hey, you've got to heal my uh, greatest commander of cancer. What would you do? You'd probably do what Jehoram does. He tears his clothes He's terrified. He's immediately grief-stricken. Sorrow overcomes him. In other words, he begins to tremble. He's petrified. And he says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man would sin? How, in other words, you want me to somehow heal you of leprosy? I'm not God. I don't have those abilities. I'm not, I'm not capable in that way. In fact, what Ahab or what Jehoram believes is he believes that there's an ulterior motive. He says, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. That in other words, what he believes is that the king of Syria is intending to attack Israel. And he wants it to be justified in the eyes of the neighbors and justified in the eyes of his country. And so he's come to seek kindness from the king of Israel. But it's a kindness that the king of Israel can't give. And so when the king of Israel denies him this kindness of healing his captain, the king of Syria, assumed in Jehoram's mind at least, is going to lay siege through Naaman on the people of Israel. And so he's overcome with grief. He's overcome with fear. He's just like that couple that stands in my office, afraid of what the future might hold. 
And he's an explanation of exactly how it is that the people of Israel have ended up where they are. They have kings, they have been led by kings who fear men more than they fear the Lord. He's been, they've been led by kings who believe that the well-being of the people of God doesn't rest in the covenant that God has made with his people, doesn't rest in the protection and the provision of the Lord, but rests in their ability to negotiate peace with their neighbors. Remember, that's how idolatry had come in the first time. You had the marriage, this political marriage with Jezebel, where they're attempting to make alliances outside of the kingdom of Israel so that they can be right with one another and at peace with their neighbors. And so we're seeing, this is how you ended up in exile, It boils down to something quite simple. You can look at all the political ramifications. You can look at all of the foolish battles. You can look at all of the things that have happened over all the years. But it boils down to a simple fact that you were led by men who didn't love God. Who didn't follow God. But if that was the path into resentment, if that was the path into exile, if that was the path into fear, then the path from fear moves toward the Lord. It is a reversal of this reality. And so what we see here is a contrast between Jehoram, the king of Israel, and these three unique characters that are to show through those characters the path forward from a life of fear. The path forward from a life in exile where you feel like you are in bondage in this world. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that the starting line from this path is a greater love. The starting path, the starting line from fear is a greater love. Now it tells us here that Naaman is in fact a great man. And he's a great man and in high favor because the Lord had given him victory. So he is essentially the prime minister of Syria, Israel's greatest enemy. And he comes in and he's got an elaborate entourage. You can just imagine that there's a a marching band playing and there's a huge uh, parade of people that are coming into town. Everybody knows that Naaman has come into town. But here's the contrast. The contrast is with this forgotten little girl that lives in his house. That in one of the raids, he had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. In other words, this little girl is who the exiles are that are reading it. She is living in a Gentile's house as a Gentile slave, serving to the Gentiles' good, right? So she is in the exact position that the people who are originally reading this are in. She's in the position that would be prone to fear, wouldn't you say? She's in the position that would be prone to bitterness, the position that would be prone to despair. And so here's her, her great master, and he's come, been stricken with leprosy to show that great men aren't really all that great. That as much as God raises men up, eventually God allows these great men to fall. And so it looks like there's this forgotten little girl living in his house, abandoned from the people of God. But she's presented to us here as the heroine of the story. As the heroine of the story. That in other words, what God is showing those people, those Israelites, all those years ago who were occupied by the Gentile armies, who were being exiled into Babylon. He's showing them all those years ago that here's a little girl and Naaman doesn't know her name and we don't know her name, but God, he knows her name. She is not forsaken. She is not forgotten in the economy of God. In fact, she's going to be the one through whom God's going to work that he might facilitate even greater glory upon himself and greater peace for his people. This is what God does, right? That you have this, this little girl, and she makes this remarkable statement, right? So here, imagine, she's, in, she's living in Naaman's house. She has no access to Naaman herself, but she hears of Naaman's condition. And do you see what she says there in verse 3? Would that my Lord were with the prophet 
who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That's a remarkable statement. It's remarkable, really, because it shows us that she cares and loves Naaman. It matters to her. And it's remarkable all the more when you consider her story. Now, this little girl, she had experienced real trauma in her life. Do you realize that the way that she was brought into Naaman's house is probably because Naaman himself had killed her parents? She probably watched as this Syrian master, this great man with all of this power and this military might and this influence comes into her little hut of a house there in Israel and executes her parents because they are at war with one another. And then she's taken away from her family and away from her friends and away from her culture and away from her whole way of life. And she's escorted north into Naaman's house where essentially she is a forgotten slave of Naaman's wife. Well, if you were her, you'd have a lot of reasons to be bitter, wouldn't you? You'd have a lot of reasons to be, to be ungrateful. In fact, what, if, if, if I was this little girl, you know what my response to Naaman's leprosy would be? I hope every single limb falls off of his body and I get to watch right? Isn't that how we think? That's exactly the way we think. You killed my mom. You killed my dad. You took me away from my family. You took me away from my people. You have caused every pain in my life. Imagine the emotional scarring on this sweet little girl. What does she say? I know how he can get better. Oh, I wish he would go. I wish he would go to the prophet. I wish he would go to the prophet Elijah who lives in Samaria. I know that if Naaman would just go and be with the prophet there, he would be healed. What compassionate words from what a, such a wounded, wounded little girl. It's very different than the response of the king, isn't it? It's very different. This little girl hears of Naaman's condition and what does she say? How can I help? How can I help? I want to make it better. The king hears of Naaman's condition, and what does he say? What about me? What's going to happen to me? Is this all about a fight for me? That for the little girl, she was able to prioritize the care of the very one that had brought harm into her life. But here's the king who has the control of the Lord's armies, who is the leader of the covenant-bearing people of God, and all he can do is place himself at the center. What's the difference? What's the difference between that little girl who is able to speak such remarkably kind words and that king who is apparently afraid and self-centered? It's proper fear and it's greater love. That's the difference. Proper fear and greater love. You know, we talk a lot about the fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord is something that's very confusing to us, isn't it? It's been confusing to me, I'll admit, most of my uh, Christian life. I don't really know what exactly, or I haven't really known exactly what it means to fear the Lord. And it's because there's this misunderstanding. Again, you know, we've talked about how often Hebrew words, when they're translated into the English, they, they lose some of their impact. They lose some of the fullness of what they mean. We've talked about this with Hesed, right? It's often translated into steadfast love, and certainly it is love. But it's so much bigger than love, right? We've looked at that in Ruth. We've talked about shalom or peace, right? Shalom, it, it does mean to have peace, but it means so much more than to have this like little flighty happiness, you know, like not worried about anything kind of peace. It means whole life well-roundedness, well right? It means that I'm, I'm succeeding, I'm, I'm thriving, I'm flourishing according to God's designs and all of God's ways. And so these words, they're translated into English, but they don't really capture the meaning. The fear of the Lord is the same way. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It doesn't mean to be afraid of God the way you might fear a divine terrorist, okay? 
It, it doesn't mean that you're afraid that, that in some way that, that you don't really understand God and that God's going to come against you and that, that you should tremble as though you, even though you know God, as though one that you may not fully know. Like, that's not exactly what it means. It certainly does communicate fear, but it communicates more of a recognition of who God is as the center and giver and provider and creator of all things. It means that he's one in whose presence you don't enter casually. It it is a sense of wonder and awe that recognizes God as the center of all that is and all that must be. As the one who is your ultimate provider, regardless of what your job situation looks like. Whether you make a lot of money or you have no job at all. It's to recognize that God is your protector, regardless if you are very strong or if you are very weak or if you're very healthy, or if you're very sick, that God is the one, not your doctors, not your diet, not your own ability to work out. No, it's God that is your strength. It's God that is your protector. It is to recognize that God is the source of security, that God is the source of our acceptance. It is to recognize that life begins and ends with the Lord. So it is, an, it is a devotion that is driven by kindness. It, 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 it is, it is a, a, a commitment and a resolve and a worship that is driven by awe. It's reverence. It's reverence not because he is terrible, but because he is so great. That it draws you near to him. And as you draw near to him, as you find your acceptance in him, as you find your provision in him, as you recognize him as the true center of all that is and all that will be, Suddenly, there's nothing else left to worry about. Suddenly, there's nothing left for you to fear. And in that way, God enables us to love truly. That when we love God fully because of who he is, because of how he's revealed himself, because the reality is that he is the center and the transcendent glory above all things, well, now I can actually love my brothers and my sisters. You see, when you fear a person, you can't truly love them. Have you ever thought about that? That when we fear, the fear of man is characterized by the necessity for you to have something that they offer. In other words, the reason that I'm afraid of you is I want you to think highly of me and I'm afraid that you won't. So I change the way that I act around you. The the, the reason that I, I get nervous in your presence is that you are my boss and in some way I believe that you control my provision and you control what I'm going to receive. So you control my my state in life, you control my well-being and so I'm nervous around you and I want you to see my best foot forward all of the time. The reason I'm, I'm afraid and unable to share the gospel with you is because I need you to think highly of me and I'm afraid that if, if I approach this uncomfortable and awkward subject that it's going to make you think lesser of me and it's because I need your acceptance, because I need you for, to, to make me feel secure as a person, I have to change the way I would relate to you. Do you see how whether you're being kind or whether you're being a good employee or whether you're being a good neighbor, whether you're being a good son or a good daughter, whether you're being a good husband or a good wife, if it is because you fear the reaction of the other person, it is placing yourself at the center and not them. In other words, it's a distortion of true love, isn't it? It's a distortion of love in the way that the Bible characterizes love. 
The Bible always characterizes love as the sacrifice of oneself for the good of someone else. But if at the center of my relationship with you is your opinion of me or my need of security from you or my need of acceptance from you, then I have perverted and distorted that love so that it's something that's less than that. And this is where, this is where, when the fear of God begins to take hold in our lives, And we recognize that what I need, what I need can only be found in the Lord. What I need is I need to be accepted by God. What I need is to realize that I am secure in God. What I need to realize is that I'm provided for by God. What I need to realize is that I am defended by the Lord. And because I am defended, protected, provided, accepted, and secured by the Lord, now I am set free to be with you exactly who God made me to be. I don't have to change myself. I don't have to alter my personality. I don't have to talk differently. I can just be with you and care for you because it's not about me. It's about him. And when it's about him, now I can love you. That's where this little girl is. It's remarkable, isn't it? And I think that's really the backdrop for the courage that she's able to display. It's remarkable courage that she shows, isn't it? Here she is in a per- living with people who have waged war against Yahweh's people, and she speaks up and she says, hey, hey, I think I know the problem. Would you kind of relay this message? Like, I think that if he would actually go and submit to Yahweh and go to my people, I think he could he could be healed. And that shows us that not only is proper fear leads to true love, but proper knowledge leads to true courage. That proper knowledge leads to true courage. What is Naaman's hope? It's the same hope that the little girl has. It's the same hope that those exiled Israelites have. Naaman's hope, the little girl's hope, the Israelites' hope, in fact, my hope and your hope, they are that she is right. That's the hope. The hope is is that God is as good and as great as she says that he is. And think of how this contrasts with Jehoram. Jehoram goes and he says, I am God. Am I God? In other words, what am I supposed to do? I'm not God. What does this little girl say? She says, I know exactly what to do because I know God. He says, "I, I can't help. I don't know what to do. I'm not God. She says, I know exactly what to do because I No, God. We need to bring him into the presence of God. We need to bring him in the presence of God's prophet. We need to make him submit beneath the Lord. And submitting beneath the Lord, I know that he can be well. Right? So she says this with this incredible confidence where she says that he would cure him. You see this confidence that she has? Isn't that a beautiful childlike faith? Can I ask you, what's your reflex? Is your first reflex, I don't know what to do? Or is your first reflex, I know who does? That's the difference. It's subtle. It's quick. It seems so simple, but it's powerful. It is a liberating reality that if you have the fear of the Lord, if you have the love of the Lord, if the Lord is at the center of your life, then my first reflex is not dismay and despair and to be overwhelmed. My first reflex is to submit before the Lord and say, this is bigger than me, but I know you. And because I know you, I am confident I will live in courage. I will live in courage. We continue to see a contrast as we move forward, and that shows us the next step away from a life of fear, and that is that the pathway is greater fear. So if the starting line is greater love, then the pathway is greater fear. And we see this really in Elisha's life. So Elisha speaks up, and and you can tell, by the way, that Elisha, he came from Elijah's school of trash-talking prophets. Right? We, We talked about this, you know. 
how Elijah talks trash over on Mount Carmel. And you can tell Elijah is very much his disciple. Elisha sends word to Jehoram and he says, why did you tear your clothes? In other words, you little coward. Like, what is wrong with you? Do you not know who the Lord is? Why would you tear your, your garments in front of some Gentile captain as though he controlled the faith? Send him to me. Send him to me that they can know, that he will know that the Lord has not left his people. That there is a prophet among Israel that is speaking on behalf of the people of God. And this is so cool. I think this is amazing. This is one of the highlights of the story, in my opinion. So here comes Naaman, all right? And it says that Naaman shows up. And he's there, and he has all of his chariots and his horses. You realize what the chariots and the horses, that's the strength of the army, okay? An army in those days, they didn't have tanks, and they didn't have, like, you know, uh, drones with smart bombs, okay? Like, the strength of your army was how good your chariots and your horses were, because that allowed you to be above your enemy and outrun your enemy and run your enemy down in battle. And it enabled you to have, so, so basically, he brings with him SEAL Team 6, okay? Like, so, so here he is, he has basically the Syrian treasury with him, hundreds of pounds of precious metals. This is an insurmountable treasure that he has with him. And he brings with him also Seal Team 6 going and knocking on Elisha's door. And Elisha, he, he's a bald-headed prophet. That's what we know about him. He's not an impressive man. Even the young kids would, would chastise him and make fun of him. And so here's Naaman. He's a great man, remember. He's a man that parades through towns and people tremble and everybody acknowledges and everybody sees him. He gets to Elisha's house and Elisha doesn't even look up from his Bible. He sends his secretary out to deal with it. He says, go out there and tell him, tell him that, that if you'll just go and dip in the Jordan seven times, he'll be healed. What a strange response. What a strange response. Naaman is incense. Like, who does this prophet, this little hairy, bald-headed prophet in Samaria think that he is to not come out and tremble and quake in my presence? But it's very different than the king's response, isn't it? The king shreds his clothes and bows his head and wonders how he can do what God can do. Elisha, Elisha's unfazed. Elisha's unconcerned because he knows exactly who God is. He knows exactly what God can do. And so what we see is that God is more impressive than other people. God is more impressive than other people. Elisha here is revealed as a man of God. This is a common term for prophets throughout the Old Testament. A man of God. And a man of God is a person who does God's work for only God's glory, by only God's power. You remember last week, Elijah tells Elisha, you don't even know exactly what you're asking if you want to follow in my footsteps because it's a hard path. See, the prophets, the men of God, they had to be able to go and with a, a backbone of steel, be able to stand before kings and tell those kings exactly what they did not want to hear. They had to be able to stand before all of Israel and tell Israel that they had strayed from the Lord and they were facing the judgment of the Lord and they had to do so at the risk of their own martyrdom. Many of the prophets are martyred by the people because they speak the message that God has for them to speak. And so to be a man of God, you had to recognize that your first and only allegiance was not to the opinions of others. It was not to your ranking among the civilians. It was not your rankings in the king's household. To be a man of God meant to live solely and entirely in the fear of God. But you know what the fear of God does? The fear of God shrinks men down to size. You can take the greatest men. 
You can take a man like Naaman. You can take a man like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Or you could take, uh, we can name the kings of the greatest nations or the presidents of the greatest nations. You can bring the newly coordinated King Charles. Or you can bring President Biden. You can bring the entire Congress. And regardless of how well-bred they are, regardless of what their endowment is, regardless of what their Ivy League education says about them, when you bring men into the presence of God, men are shrunk down to their size. Men just aren't very impressive. When you see them beside God. That's the secret to Elijah's Elisha's strength. Here he is, and he's before there's a man before him that seemingly can control his life and his death, his, his prosperity or his poverty. But Elisha knows better. Elisha knows those things are only found in the Lord Himself. And so because these things are found only in the Lord himself, he's not seeking to be, to be a, uh, impressive to, to Naaman. In fact, he wants Naaman to know, I am unimpressed altogether. And that's how you fight fear with fear. If you're a person who's always trembling, if you're a person whose heart always accelerates when you're in the presence of someone important, when your heart always begins to race when your boss walks into the room or when the phone rings and it's a certain person or a, or a text message comes through or a Facebook message comes through or, or you put out a post and you wonder, is everybody going to like me as a result of this? And the solution of that, to that fear, is to fight it with greater fear. To fight it with the fear of the Lord. In other words, in other words, in other words, what you have to do is come nearer and nearer to the presence of the Lord. Draw nearer and nearer in your knowledge of the Lord. Draw fuller and fuller in your love of God. And when you begin to glimpse in greater degree the transcendent glory of the God who is, suddenly, suddenly men just aren't very scary anymore. Suddenly you recognize the boss, he doesn't hold in your hands your prosperity He doesn't hold in his hands your provision. It is the Lord. Suddenly, the friends that sit around you in school or the the teammates that have the locker beside you, when they look at you and they they wonder why you won't go and do what they do or be the way they are or talk like they talk, suddenly all of their approval and all of their acceptance melts away when you draw near to the transcendent glory of God. For you, what's bigger? What's bigger? Is it your ideas about what men can bring or women can bring into your life? Or is it who God is? Is it who God is? One, one is a slavery. One is oppression. One is a freedom. One is a liberty. See, it's not just that. It's that God is more important than me. That's what Elisha wants him to see. He's peeved off, right? I think this is, this is so great. And uh, he, he's there, and he's, he's upset, and he's, he sends him out. And Naaman essentially says, don't we have cleaner creeks in Damascus? Like, the Jordan, if you ever go to the Jordan River, the Jordan is a muddy mess. Like, it's, it's not particularly attractive. It's not particularly impressive. I've never been there myself, but I've seen the pictures, and I've heard people talk about it. And so you can imagine Naaman, he's like, okay, this is the plan. This is the plan. I walked over five clearer creeks to get to this guy, and he tells me to go out to the mud hole out back and dip seven times, and suddenly now I'm washed. Don't you think I've washed myself before? Don't you think I've made myself, tried uh, to do everything that I can to clean the scabs so that they're better for me? See, he, the reason he had brought that treasure, 
The reason he had brought all the gold and all the silver and the full entourage is he expected that Yahweh and the prophet of Yahweh would operate just like all of the other gods and all of the other prophets. That they would accept a payoff. That they would be impressed by who he was. That they would, be, uh, that they would send him on some great journey to go and find some special sword in the stone to bring back to him to show that he is truly a great man and truly worthy of the healing of this God. This was too simple to believe. This was simply too simple to believe. And the servants of Naaman proved to be wiser than Naaman himself. In the text, it says something about like, you expected something hard to be said to you, but something good was said to you. But basically every other translation that you find says it differently than that. They reframe it to say something that you expect. You expected them to give you a hard task to do, and he gave you an easy task to do, and you're angry because you wanted it to be harder. Naaman, help us out here. Why is it if you were willing to do a a hard task to have this healing, will you not do an easy task to be healed? In other words, Naaman wanted to be able to prove himself worthy. Naaman wanted to see if he could buy off Elisha. But Elisha is proving that it's not about me, it's not about Elisha, and it's not about you. It doesn't matter that you're a great man. It doesn't matter that you command a lot of people. It doesn't matter that you're rich. It doesn't matter that you're well-educated. It doesn't matter that you're, super, that you're super strong. It doesn't matter that everybody else is afraid of you. You and I, before the Lord, are equal at the foot. So what you have to do is decide whether or not you will trust him or not. Not based on your strength, but based on your weakness. Are you not here, Naaman, because you're a leper? Are you not here, Naaman, because you're weak? This isn't about strength. This isn't about how great you are. This is about how great the Lord is. Do you see this? That the simplicity, the simplicity of the the call for faith in Naaman's life was a stumbling block for him. That he couldn't believe it because it was just too simple. It reminds us of the simplicity of the gospel, doesn't it? I wonder if there's some of you that you're here. And and, and your whole life you've heard about faith in Jesus saves you. That you will be saved by faith in Christ, right? Faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And you, in your mind, think it just can't be like that. It can't be that something so simple, I just place my trust in Jesus and now I get a new heart and a new mind and a new life and a new destiny. But maybe, maybe you should recognize that the fact that it's so hard for you to trust shows that it's not so easy anyway. That to disbelieve in yourself, to stop relying on your strength, to stop relying upon your worthiness is the very hardest thing for a human being to do. And yet it's that very act, that very act that says it's not about my greatness, it's not about my wealth, it's not about my health, it's not about my strength, it's not about my worthiness, it's not about the opinions of my neighbors or my classmates, it's not about the opinions of my kids or my parents. The only thing that matters is that I am fully and utterly committed to Christ and so I will humble myself and I will place my trust and my confidence in the Lord. So Naaman, he goes and he's going to dip himself. But I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning, if you would come to that simple message of the gospel. I wonder this morning, if you would finally just get over yourself and realize that you, you no matter who you impress, no matter how much money you make, no matter what the teammates think of you, no matter what education that you receive, no matter what scholarships you have, no matter how high, whatever the letters are outside the office door in your building say about you, those things are not 
who you are. You are only who God says you are. And if you will come to him by faith that Jesus is worthiness and not yours is what matters, that Jesus is righteousness and not yours is what brings you and makes you worthy, that Jesus' death can be the substitute for your death. If you will place your simple faith in him and offer to him the fullness of your life, well then, and he says that you're a child of his. He says that you'll receive a new heart and a new nature and a new life and a new destiny. Brothers and sisters, he takes what is foolish and he shames the wise. He takes that which is weak and he shames the strong. He invites all of us not to come in our strength, but to come in our uncleanliness, to come in our leprosy and to submit ourselves. And that's why we see that the destination is greater glory for himself. The destination is greater glory. So Naaman does. He goes and he says, okay, you've made a little bit too much sense to me. And he goes down and he dips himself seven times down in the Jordan. And do you know what it says? Oh, man. Verse 14 at the end. And he was clean. He was clean. It says that his skin became like that of a newborn child. That it was smooth and clean one more time, just like a baby that had just been born. And what's awesome is when it talks about Naaman being clean, it doesn't qualify it. It doesn't just say that he's clean in his skin. You see, there were two different dimensions in Naaman's life where he was unclean. He was unclean because he was a leper, meaning he couldn't enter into the assembly of God's people for the worship of God. But he also... He was unclean because he was a Gentile. He was born outside of the promise. He was born outside of the promised land. In fact, he was an enemy of the people of God. He was an apparent enemy of God. But both of these realities are in view when it says, and he was clean, just like Rahab who lived in Jericho, just like Ruth who came out of Moab, just like me and you who were enemies of the Most High God. Here is an enemy of God declared clean by God because of his faith, trust, and humility before God. Do you see it? This is the essence of the rebirth. This is how you and I get new flesh. This is how you and I get a heart that is turned from stone into a heart of flesh that is infatuated with the character of God. It is when we humble ourselves and get over ourselves and the Lord through the blood of Jesus Christ makes us clean. Makes us clean. See, what Naaman experienced was a new fear that leads to a new freedom. I want you to look at verse, uh, verse 15. I think the most beautiful word in the whole passage is right here. It says, then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, remember the entourage, still team six has traveled with him. They've witnessed all of this. And he came and he stood before him. And he said, behold, I know there is no God in all the earth. I know that all the gods of Syria are false. I know that all of the gods of, of Babylon, I, I know that all the gods of the Persians, I know that all the gods of all the earth are false. That there is one true God among all the other gods, which is an impossibly radical statement for us to understand in a polytheistic setting for a man who has grown up thinking that every nation has their own God. To say there is one God among one people, and it is Yahweh himself. But listen to what he says. But in Israel, so... So, so, except now a present from your servant. 
you see the orders changed? Do you see the orders changed? Here's what I mean. Naaman came to Elisha. And Naaman came and he tried to give an offering to make himself worthy so that God would accept him. So that God would heal him. So that God would make him clean. But now we get to verse 15 and God has made him clean. And God has accepted him, not because of his wealth, not because of his strength, not because of his honor, not because of his prestige. In fact, in spite of every one of those things. But now the order has flipped and he's not giving so that he can receive. He's giving because he has received. He's not giving so that he will be accepted. He's giving because he has been accepted. Now his life has been transformed so that the so is different. I'm not doing so I will have. I'm doing because I've been given. Because I've been given. If that's not gospel freedom, I don't know what gospel freedom is. That's the difference between Christianity and all the other worldviews that you subscribe to. That's the difference between Christianity and all the things that come across our screens on Fox News and CNN and Madison Avenue. That's the fundamental difference. We don't go and tremble before God so that we can give him something that might cause him to love us. We go and we bow ourselves in wonder and awe and reverence and wonder because he has, through Christ, given to me. I don't come and slide over a couple of dollars into the offering plate so that God will love me. I come and I make an offering sacrificial wishing that I could give more because he has given so much to me. I don't come and come to worship in a place just like this so that I can check church off my list and hope that God will acknowledge it and think that I'm an awesome Christian and let me come into heaven. I come and I bow down and worship and I raise up my voice in worship and I raise up my hands in worship and I dial in my heart and mind to the sermon because, because he has come to me, because he has received me, because he has secured me, because I am his, the so in my life is is different. The cause and effect in my life is different. The implications of my life are different now. I once was a slave, but I have been set free. I once was a man of lesser fears, of lesser people, of lesser circumstances, but now I am a, of a man, a disciple of a greater fear, of a greater love, of a greater devotion. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Do you see it? See, there's a new fear that leads to a new freedom and a new fear that points to a new future. This is where we're going to land. Remember who it's written to. People who resent the present and fear the future. But here, here in the salvation of Naaman, here in the conversion of Naaman, there is a message to those Jews who are trembling in fear, afraid of what the exile will lead to. And there is, there is a word here for all of us who are afraid of what our cancer is going to lead to, who are afraid of what the disapproval of our children is going to lead to, who, who are afraid of what the, the failure before our boss is going to lead to. In other words, here's Naaman, and he's an enemy of God. He's the one who is an oppressor of God's people. And God converts him. Do you see what he's saying? I allowed them to conquer you. 
Oh, but my people, my children, Israel, church, listen to me. I'm going to deliver you from them myself. How am I going to do it? I'm not just going to smite them. I'm going to convert them. I'm going to make my name great and my name glorious, not just among Israel, not just among my people, but among all peoples and all nations and all places so that from every corner of the cosmos, image bearers will stand up in their own tongue in different complexions and different races and different ethnicities and different backgrounds and they will say there is only one God and it is the God of Israel. It shouldn't be lost on us. It shouldn't be lost on us that he had to go and he had to dip into what? The Jordan. I've told you before about something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint which is symbolized by those Roman numerals, the LXX, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in the Greek translation, you know what Greek word they use to translate the word dipped? Baptizo. Baptizo. That what Naaman does is he is baptized into faith in the Jordan River into the service of the Most High God. Does that trigger a thought in your mind? Was there someone else who was baptized into the Jordan River? Oh, there was, wasn't there? There was a greater king, the son of the most high God who came and lived. And there he was dipped. He was baptizo. He was baptized into the Jordan River where the heavens split and the spirit descended like a dove. And the father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. What was the hope of Israel? Oh, the bad kings had brought them down, but there was a glorious and great king that would raise them up. What is the hope that we have as we face bosses and a collapsing economy and the fear of raising our children in an ever-heathenizing and paganizing world? What is the hope that we have? Oh, our government may fail us. Our Congress may fail us. Our presidents may fail us. Our politicians may fail us. Our pundits may fail us. But there is a king who has come, who was baptized in the Jordan, who will return on a victory horse, one that will cause Naaman to be humbled before him with SEAL Team 6, and he will come in victory and receive his church to experience eternal security with him. Oh, you don't have anything to fear right now, brothers and sisters. You have nothing to worry about at all because Jesus, Jesus has come. And the the simplicity of the gospel is that if you will come to him, you can overcome the fear in your life by a greater fear, by a greater reverence, by a greater awe for a higher king. Let's pray to the Lord together now. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.